Chapter One of the Millionaire Baby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Don Larson in Minnesota. The Millionaire's Baby by Anna K. Green. Chapter One. Two Little Shoes. The morning of August 18th was a memorable one to me. For two months I had had a run of bad luck. During that time I had failed to score in at least three affairs of unusual importance, and the result was a decided loss in repute as well as great financial embarrassment. As I had a mother and two sisters to support, and knew but one way to do it, I was in a state of profound discouragement. This was before I took up the morning papers. After I had opened and read them, not a man in New York could boast of higher hopes or greater confidence in his power to rise by one bold stroke from threatened bankruptcy to immediate independence. The paragraph which had occasioned this amazing change must have passed under the eyes of many of you. It created a widespread excitement at the time and raised in more than one breast the hope of speedy fortune. It was attached to, or rather introduced, the most startling feature of the week, and it ran thus A Fortune for a Child, by cable from Southampton. A reward of five thousand dollars is offered by Philo Ocampa to whoever will give such information as will lead to the recovery, alive or dead, of his six year old daughter Gwendolen, missing since the afternoon of August the sixteenth, from her home on the Hudson, New York, USA. Fifty thousand dollars additional and no questions asked if she is restored unharmed within the week to her mother at Homewood. All communications to be addressed to Samuel Atwater on the Hudson. A minute description of the child followed, but this did not interest me, and I did not linger over it. The child was no stranger to me. I knew her well and consequently was quite aware of her personal characteristics. It was the great amount offered for her discovery and restoration which moved me so deeply. Fifty thousand dollars. A fortune for any man. More than a fortune to me, who stood in such need of ready money. I was determined to win this extraordinary sum. I had my reason for hope, and, in the light of this unexpectedly munificent reward, decided to waive all the considerations which had hitherto prevented me from stirring in the matter. There were other reasons less selfish, which gave impetus to my resolve. I had done business for the Ocampas before, and had been well treated in the transaction. I recognized and understood both Mr. Ocampa's peculiarities and those of his admired and devoted wife. As man and woman, they were kindly, honorable, and devoted to many more interests than those connected with their own wealth. I also knew their hearts to be wrapped up in this child the sole offspring of a long and happy union, and the actual as well as prospective inheritor of more millions than I shall ever see thousands. Unless I am fortunate enough to solve the mystery now exercising the sympathies of the whole New York public. You have all heard of this child under another name. From her birth she has been known as the millionaire baby, being the direct heir to three fortunes, two of which she has already received. I saw her first when she was three years old, a cherubic little being, 
lovely to look upon, and possessing unusual qualities for so young a child. Indeed, her picturesque beauty and appealing ways would have attracted all eyes and won all hearts, even if she had not represented in her small person the wealth both of the Ocampa and Rathbone families. There was an individuality about her, combined with sensibilities of no ordinary nature, which fully accounted for the devoted affection with which she was universally regarded. And when she suddenly disappeared, it was easy to comprehend, if one did not share, the thrill of horror which swept from one end of our broad continent to the other. Those who knew the parents, and those who did not, suffered an equal pain at the awful thought of this petted innocent lost in the depths of the great unknown, with only the false caresses of her abductors to comfort her, for the deprivation of all those delights which love and unlimited means could provide to make a child of her years supremely happy. Her father, and this was what gave the keen edge of horror to the whole occurrence, was in Europe when she disappeared. He had been cabled at once, and his answer was the proffered reward with which I have opened this story. An accompanying dispatch to his distracted wife announced his relinquishment of the project which had taken him abroad, and his immediate return on the next steamer sailing from Southampton. As this chanced to be the fastest on the line, we had reason to expect him in six days. Meanwhile, but to complete my personal recapitulations, when the first news of this startling abduction flashed upon my eyes from the bulletin boards, I looked on the matter as one of too great magnitude to be dealt with by any but the Metropolitan Police. But as time passed and further details of the strange and seemingly inexplicable affair came to light, I began to feel the stirring of the detective instinct within me. Did I say that I was connected with a private detective agency of some note in the metropolis? And a desire quite apart from any mere humane interest in the event itself, to locate the intelligence back of such a desperate crime, an intelligence so keen that, up to the present moment, if we may trust the published accounts of the affair, not a clue had been unearthed by which its author could be traced, or the means employed for carrying off this petted object of a thousand cares. To be sure, there was a theory which eliminated all crime from the occurrence, as well as the intervention of any one in the child's fate. She might have strayed down to the river and been drowned. But the probabilities were so opposed to this supposition that the police had refused to embrace it, although the mother had accepted it from the first, and up to the present moment, or so it was stated, had refused to consider any other. As she had some basis for this conclusion, I am still quoting from the papers, you understand. I was not disposed to ignore it in the study I proceeded to make of the situation. The details, as I ran them over in the hurried trip I now made up the river, were as follows. On the afternoon of Wednesday, August 16th, the guests assembled in Mrs. Ocampa's white and gold music room were suddenly thrown into confusion by the appearance among them of a young girl in a state of great perturbation, who, running up to the startled hostess, announced that Gwendolen, the petted darling of the house, was missing from the bungalow where she had been lying asleep, and could not be found, though a dozen men had been out on search. The wretched mother, 
who, as it afterward transpired, had not only given the orders by which the child had been thus removed from the excitement of the house, but had actually been herself but a few moments before to see that the little one was well cared for and happy, seemed struck as by a mortal blow at these words, and, uttering a heart-rending scream, ran out onto the lawn. A crowd of guests rushed after her, and as they followed her flying figure across the lawn to the small copse, in which lay hidden this favoured retreat, they could hear, borne back on the wind, the wild protests of the young nurse, that she had left the child for a minute only, and then to go no farther than the bench running along the end of the bungalow facing the house, that she had been told she could sit there and listen to the music, but that she never would have left the child's side for a minute if she had not supposed she would hear her least stir, protests which the mother scarcely seemed to heed, and which were presently lost in the deep silence which fell on all. As, brought to a stand in the thick shrubbery surrounding the bungalow, they saw the mother stagger up to the door, look in, and turn toward them with death in her face. "'The river!' she gasped. "'The river!' And heedless of all attempt to stop her, heedless even of the efforts made by the little one's nurse to draw her attention to the nearness of a certain opening in the high hedge marking off the Ocampa's grounds on this side. She ran down the bank in the direction of the railway, but fainted before she had more than cleared the thicket. When they lifted her up, they all saw the reason for this. She had come upon a little shoe which she held frantic, clutched against her breast, her child's shoe, which, as she afterward acknowledged, she had loosened with her own hand on the little one's foot. Of course, after this, the whole hillside was searched down to the fence which separated it from the railroad track. But no further trace of the child was found, nor did it appear possible to any one that she could have strayed away in this direction. For not only was the bank exceedingly steep, and the fence at its base impassable, but a gang of men, working as good fortune would have it, at such a point on the road below as to render it next to impossible for her to have crossed the track within a half-mile either way, without being observed, had one and all declared that not one of them had seen her or any other person descend the slope. This, however, made but little impression on the mother. She would listen to no hints of abduction, but persisted in her declaration that the river had swallowed her darling, and would neither rest nor turn her head from its waters, till some half a dozen men about the place had been set systematically to work to drag the stream. Meanwhile, the police had been notified and the whole town aroused. The search, which had been carried on up to this time in a frantic but desultory way, now became methodical nor was it confined to the Acumpa estate. All the roads and byways within half a mile either way were covered by a most careful investigation. All the nearby houses were entered, especially those which the child was most in the habit of frequenting, but no one had seen her, nor could any trace of her presence be found. At five o'clock all hope of her return was abandoned, and, much against Mrs. Ocampa's wish, who declared that the news of the child's death would affect her father far less than the dreadful possibilities of abduction. 
The exact facts of the case had been cabled to Mr. Ocumpaugh. The night and another day passed, bringing but little relief to the situation. Not an eye had yet been closed in Homewood, nor had the search ceased for an instant. Not an inch of the great estate had been overlooked, yet men could still be seen beating the bushes and peering in all the secluded spots, which once had formed the charm of this delightful place. As on the land, so on the river. All the waters in the dock had been dragged, yet the work went on, some said under the very eye of Mrs. Ocumpaugh, but there was no result as yet. In the city the interest was intense. The telegraph at police headquarters had been clicking incessantly for thirty-six hours, under the direction, some said, of the superintendent himself. Everything which could be done had been done, but as yet the papers were able to report nothing beyond some vague stories of a child with its face much bound up, having been seen at the heels of a woman in Grand Central Station in New York and hints of a covered wagon, with a crying child inside, which had been driven through Westchester County at a great pace shortly before sunset on the previous day, closely followed by a buggy with the storm apron up, though the sun shone and there was not a cloud in the sky. But nothing definite, nothing which could give hope to the distracted mother, or do more than divide the attention of the police between two different but equally tenable theories. Then came the cablegram from Mr. Ocumpaugh, which threw amateur as well as professional detectives into the field. Among the latter was myself, which naturally brings me back once more to my own conclusions. Of one thing I felt sure. Very early in my cogitations, before we had quitted the Park Avenue tunnel, in fact, I had decided in my own mind that if I were to succeed in locating the lost heiress, it must be by subtler methods than lay open to the police. I was master of such methods, in this case at least, and though one of many owning to similar hopes on this very train, which was rushing me through to Homewood, I had no feeling but that of confidence in the final success. How well founded this confidence was, will presently appear. The number of seedy-looking men with a mysterious air who alighted in my company at the station, and immediately proceeded to make their way up the steep street toward Homewood, warned me that it would soon be extremely difficult for anyone to obtain access to the parties most interested in the child's loss. Had I not possessed the advantage of being already known to Mrs. Ocumpaugh, I should have immediately given up all hope of ever obtaining access to her presence, and even with this fact to back me, I approached the house with very little confidence in my ability to win my way through the iron gates I had so frequently passed before without difficulty. And indeed I found them well guarded. As I came nearer, I could see man after man being turned away, and not till my card had been handed in, and a hurried note to boot, did I obtain permission to pass the first boundary. Another note secured me admission to the house, but there my progress stopped. Mrs. Ocumpaugh had already been interviewed by five reporters and a special agent from the New York police. She could see no one else at present. If, however, my business was of importance, an opportunity would be given for me to see Miss Porter, 
Miss Porter was her companion and female factotum. As I had calculated upon having a half-dozen words with the mother herself, I was greatly thrown out by this, but, going upon the principle that half a loaf was better than no bread, I was about to express a desire to see Miss Porter, when an incident occurred which effectually changed my mind in this regard. The hall in which I was standing, and which communicated with the side door by which I had entered, ended in a staircase, leading, as I had reason to believe, to the smaller and less pretentious rooms in the rear of the house. While I hesitated what reply to give the girl awaiting my decision, I caught the sound of soft weeping from the top of this staircase, and presently beheld the figure of a young woman coming slowly down, clad in coat and hat, and giving every evidence, both in dress and manner, of leaving for good. It was Miss Graham, a young woman who held the position of nursery governess to the child. I had seen her before, and had no small admiration for her, and the sensation I experienced at the sight of her leaving the house, where her services were apparently no longer needed, proved to me, possibly for the first time, that I had more heart in my breast than I had ever before realized. But it was not this which led me to say to the maid standing before me that I preferred to see Mrs. Ocumpa herself, and would call early the next day. It was the thought that this sorrowing girl would have to pass the gauntlet of many prying eyes on her way to the station, and that she might be glad of an escort whom she knew and had shown some trust in. Also, but the reasons behind that also will soon become sufficiently apparent. I was right in supposing that my presence on the porch outside would be a pleasing surprise to her. Though her tears continued to flow, she accepted my proffered companionship with gratitude, and soon we were passing side by side across the lawn, toward a shortcut leading down the bank to the small flag station used by the family and by certain favored neighbors. As we threaded the shrubbery, which is very thick about the place, she explained to me the cause of her abrupt departure. The sight of her, it seemed, had become insupportable to Mrs. Ocumpa. Though no blame could be rightfully attached to her, it was certainly true that the child had been carried off while in her charge, and, however hard that might be for her, few could blame the mother for wishing her removed from the house, desolated by the lack of vigilance. But she was a good girl and felt the humiliation of her departure, almost in the light of a disgrace. As soon as we came again into an open portion of the lawn, she stopped short and looked back. Oh, she cried, gripping me by the arm, there is Mrs. Ocumpa still at the window. All night she has stood there except when she flew down to the river at the sound of some imaginary call from the boats. She believes, she really believes, that they will yet come upon Gwendolen's body in the dock there. Following the direction of her glance, I looked up. Was that Mrs. Ocumpa? that haggard, intent figure with eyes fixed in awful expectancy on the sinister group I could picture to myself down at the water's edge? Never could I have imagined such a look on features that I had always considered as cold as they were undeniably beautiful. As I took in the misery it expressed, that awful waiting for an event momently anticipated and momently postponed, 
I found myself, without reason and simply in response to the force of her expression, unconsciously sharing her expectation, and with a momentary forgetfulness of all the probabilities, was about to turn toward the spot upon which her glances were fixed, when a touch on my arm recalled me to myself. Come, whispered my trembling companion, she may look down and see us here. I yielded to her persuasion and turned away into the cluster of trees that lay between us and the opening in the hedge through which our course lay. Had I been alone, I should not have budged until I had seen some change, any change, in the face whose appearance had so deeply affected me. Mrs. Ocumpa certainly believes that the body of her child lies in the water, I remarked, as we took our way onward as rapidly as possible. Do you know her reasons for this? She says, and I think she is right so far, that the child has been bent for a long time on fishing, that she has heard her father talk repeatedly of his great luck in Canada last year, and wished to try the sport for herself, that she has been forbidden to go to the river, but must have taken the first opportunity when no eye was on her to do so, and... And Mrs. Ocumpa shows a bit of string which she found last night in the bushes alongside the tracks when she ran down, as I have said, at some imaginary shout from the boats, a string which she declares she saw rolled up in Gwendolen's hand when she went into the bungalow to look at her. Of course it may not be the same, but Mrs. Ocumpa thinks it is, and do you think it possible, after all, that the child did stray down to the water? No, was the vehement disclaimer. Gwendolen's feet were excessively tender. She could not have taken three steps in only one shoe. I should have heard her cry out. What if she went in someone's arms? A stranger's? She has a decided instinct against strangers. Never could anyone she did not know and like have carried her so far as that without her waking. Then those men on the track, they would have seen her. No, Mr. Trevitt, it was not in that direction she went. The force of her emphasis convinced me that she had an opinion of her own in regard to this matter. Was it one she was ready to impart? In what direction, then, I asked, with a gentleness I hoped would prove effective. Her impulse was toward frank reply. I saw her lips part and her eyes take on the look which precedes a direct avowal. But, as chance would have it, we came at that moment upon the thicket enclosing the bungalow, and the sight of its picturesque walls showing brown through the verdure of surrounding shrubbery seemed to act as a check upon her, for, with a quick look and a certain dry accent, quite new in her speech, she suddenly inquired if I did not want to see the place from which Gwendolen had disappeared. Naturally I answered in the affirmative, and followed her as she turned aside into the circular path which embraces the hidden retreat. But I had rather have heard her answer to my question than have gone anywhere or seen anything at that moment. Yet, when in full view of the bungalow's open door, she stopped to point out to me the nearness of that place to that opening in the hedge we had just been making for, and when she even went so far as to indicate the tangled little path by which that opening could be reached directly, from the farther end of the bungalow, I considered that my question had been answered, though in another way than I had anticipated, 
even before I noted the slight flush which rose to her cheek under my earnest scrutiny. As I took this all in, I ventured to ask some particulars of the family living so near the Ocumpas. "'Who occupies that house?' I asked, pointing to the sloping roof's ornamental chimney, arising just beyond us over the hedgerows. "'Oh, that is Mrs. Carew's home. She is a widow and Mrs. Ocumpa's dearest friend. How she loved Gwendolen, how we all loved her, and now, that wretch, she burst into tears. They were genuine ones. So was her grief.' I waited till she was calm again, then inquired very softly, "'What wretch?' "'You have not been inside,' she suggested, pointing sharply to the bungalow. "'I took the implied rebuke and entered the door,' she indicated. "'A man was sitting within, but he rose and went out when he saw us. "'He wore a policeman's badge and evidently recognized her, or possibly myself. "'I noted, however, that he did not go far from the doorway. "'It is only a den,' remarked Miss Graham. "'I looked about me.' She had described it perfectly, a place to lounge on an August day like present. Walls of Georgia pine, across one of which hung a series of long dark rugs, a long low window looking toward the house, a few articles of bamboo furniture described the place. Among the latter was a couch. It was drawn up underneath the window, on the other side of which ran the bench where my companion declared she had been sitting while listening to the music. "'Wouldn't you think my attention would have been caught by the sound of anyone moving about here?' she cried, pointing to the couch and then to the window. "'But the window was closed, and the door, if you see, is round the corner from the bench.' "'A person with a very stealthy step, apparently.' "'Very,' she admitted. "'Oh, how can I ever forgive myself? How can I ever, ever forgive myself?' As she stood wringing her hands in sight of that empty couch, I cast a scrutinizing glance about me, which led me to remark, "'This interior looks new, much newer than the outside. It has quite a modern air.' "'Yes, the bungalow is old, very old. But this room, or den, or whatever you might call it, was all remodeled and fitted up as you see it now, when the new house went up. It had long been abandoned as a place of retreat, and had fallen into such decay that it was a perfect eyesore to all who saw it. Now it is likely to be abandoned again, and for what a reason! Oh, the dreadful place! How I hate it now Gwendolen is gone! One moment. I notice another thing. This room does not occupy the whole of the bungalow. Either she did not hear me, or thought it unnecessary to reply, and perceiving that her grief had now given way to an impatience to be gone, I did not press the matter, but led the way myself to the door. As we entered the little path which runs directly to that outlet in the hedge, I ventured to speak again. You have reasons, or so it appears, for believing that the child was carried off through this very path? The reply was impetuous. How else could she have been spirited away so quickly? Besides, here her eye stole back at me over her shoulder. I have since remembered that as I ran out of the bungalow in my fright at finding the child gone, I heard the sound of wheels on Mrs. Carew's driveway. It did not mean much to me then, for I expected to find the child somewhere about on the grounds. But now 
when I come to think it? It means everything, for a child's cry mingled with it, or I imagined that it did, and that child... But, I forcibly interposed, the police should know this. They do, and so does Mrs. Ocumpa, but she has only the one idea, and nothing can move her. I remembered the wagon with the crying child inside, which had been seen on the roads the previous evening, and my heart fell a little in spite of myself. "'Couldn't Mrs. Carew tell us something about this?' I asked, with a gesture toward the house we were now passing. "'No, Mrs. Carew went to New York that morning, and had only just returned when we missed Gwendolen. She had been for her little nephew, who has lately been made an orphan, and she was too busy making him feel comfortable at home to notice if a carriage had passed through her grounds. Her servants, then? She had none. All had been sent away. The house was quite empty. I thought this rather odd, but having at that moment reached the long flight of steps leading down the embankment, I made no reply till we reached the foot. Then I observed. I thought Mrs. Carew was very intimate with Mrs. Ocumpa. She is, they are more like sisters than mere friends. Yet she goes to New York the very day her friend gives a musicale? Oh, she had good reasons for that. Mrs. Carew is planning to sail this week for Europe, and this was her only opportunity for getting her little nephew, who is to go with her. But I don't know as she will sail now. She is wild with grief over Gwendolen's loss, and will not feel like leaving Mrs. Acumpa until she knows whether... We shall ever see the dear child again. But I shall miss my train. Here her step visibly hastened. As it was really very nearly due, I had not the heart to detain her. But as I followed in her wake, I noticed that for all her hurry a curious hesitancy crept into her step at times, and I should not have been surprised at any moment to see her stop and confront me on one of the two remaining long flights of steps leading down the steep hillside. But we both reached the base without having yielded to this impulse, and presently we found ourselves in full view of the river and the small flag station, located but a few rods away toward the left. As we turned toward the latter, we both cast an involuntary look back at the Ocampa deck, where a dozen men could be seen at work dragging the riverbed with grappling irons. It made a sadly suggestive picture, and the young girl at my side shuddered violently as we noted the expression of morbid curiosity on the faces of such onlookers, men and women, as were drawn up at the end of the small point on which the boathouse stood. But I had another reason than this for urging her on. I had noticed how, at the sight of her slight figure descending the slope, some half-dozen or so men separated themselves from this group, with every appearance of intending to waylay and question her. She noticed this, too, and drawing up more closely to my side, exclaimed with marked feeling, "'Save me from these men, and I will tell you something that no one—' But here she stopped. Here our very thoughts stopped. A shout had risen from the group at the water edge, a shout which made us both turn, and even caused the men who had started to follow us to wheel about and rush back to the dock with every appearance of intense excitement. "'What is it? What can it be?' faltered my greatly alarmed companion. "'They have found something, see? What is that? The man in the boat is holding up. It looks like—' But she was already halfway to the point, 
outstripping the very men whose importunities she had shrunk from a moment before. I was not far behind her, and almost immediately we found ourselves wedged among the agitated group, leaning over the little object which had been tossed ashore into the first hand outstretched to receive it. It was a second little shoe, filled with sand and dripping with water, but recognizable as similar to the one already found the preceding day, high up on the bank. As this fact was borne in on us all, a groan of pity broke from more than one pair of lips, and eye after eye stole up the hillside to that far window in the great pile above us where the mother's form could be dimly discerned swaying in an agitation caught from our own excitement. But there was one amongst us whose glance never left that little shoe. The train she had been so anxious to take whistled and went thundering by, but she never moved or noticed. Suddenly she reached out her hand. "'Let me see it, please,' she entreated. "'I was her nurse. Let me take it in my hand.' The man who held it passed it over. She examined it long and closely. "'Yes, it is hers,' she said. But in another moment she had laid it down with what I thought was a very peculiar look. Instantly it was caught up and carried with a rush up the slope, where Mrs. Ocumpa could be seen awaiting it with outstretched arms. But I did not linger to mark her reception of it. Miss Graham had drawn me to one side and was whispering in my ear. "'I must talk to you. I cannot keep back another moment what I think or what I feel.' "'Someone is playing with Mrs. Ocumpa's fears. "'That shoe is Gwendolen's, "'but it is not the mate of the one found on the bank above. "'That one? That was for the left foot, "'and so is this one. Did you not notice?' End of chapter 1